As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Bocachil From Lummi to La Push and from the lordly sawduck to lovely duck a bush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for listening to episode 19. Booms and Busts, The Story of Republic. Today, Republic, the county seat of Ferry County, consists of roughly a little under 1,000 residents. Perhaps best known today for the awesome Stone Rose Interpretive Center and Fossil Site, which sits on an entire hillside right next to downtown. When Republic was first established, it was known as Eureka or Eureka Gulch, and came into existence because of another type of dig. A gold mining camp was first established here in 1896. Two years later, it would be crowded with over 2,000 prospectors and general miners who were housed almost entirely in canvas tents. Several mines in the area hit lucrative gold veins, including the Republic Mine. The same year the town saw its population boom, it would be renamed to Republic due to the fact that there was another town called Eureka already in the Evergreen State. For untold centuries, the valley that became Republic was a crossing point for several Native American trails. One headed east over the Kettle Range, while a second trail headed west over the highlands of Okanagan, while yet another headed south down the Sandpoil River, which is located nearby. Pretty much exactly where the business district today was the convergence point for these three vital early trails. The Colvilles and several other tribes were known to frequent the area often, and as a result, it was included in the massive Colville Reservation. In 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed an executive order establishing the Colville Indian Reservation along the Columbia River. This is where Native Americans from 12 tribes were designated to live on several million acres of land. In 1891, nearly 20 years later, the reservation would be reduced to 1.4 million acres when the federal government purchased the entire northern half of the reservation. Due to this, the area that eventually became Republic saw very little white presence during the majority of the 1800s. The motivation for the government to do this was the potential for gold strikes to occur in the area. In fact, on February 21, 1896, the northern half would be open for claims and eager prospectors soon flooded the area. Gold fever quickly took hold of the entire region. One of the first prospectors to the area was John Welty, who was so eager that he showed up the day before the land would be open for claims on the 20th of February. He was not the first, however, because he spent the night with a squatter named O'Brien and noted that there were a few in the area prior to his arrival. Welty's brother showed up later that winter and reported that the thermometer never rose higher than 20 below zero for many days. He also noted that some of the other prospectors came dangerously close to losing their lives due to the extreme cold. 
The Welty's claim came to be known as the Blacktail Mine and was located along a small tributary of the San Poil River called Eureka Creek. Rumors of the riches of the area led to several more prospectors setting up in February and March of 1896. Included among these rough and hard scrabble men were Tom Ryan and Phil Creaser, who made claims on the mines that ultimately became the Republic claim and the Jim Blaine claim. These claims would soon prove to be quite valuable for their owners. News of this gold spread like wildfire throughout the region considering the time frame, and by April 18, 1896, over 60 men called the small mining camp home. This camp would soon be named after the little creek that ran through it, Eureka. At this early stage in the town, there was no rail or river transportation system in place, and everything that was needed or wanted had to be packed in by mule or foot. Where there are miners, there will most assuredly be people nearby taking advantage of the opportunity to sell supplies to these excited men at a steep markup. Eureka was no different, and soon a merchant by the name of W.C. Otto arrived with his 20-mule team, which was loaded with mining supplies and other gear these isolated men would need for their ventures. This first store was set up hastily and occupied a large canvas tent. It took another year for the small town to see its first wooden building be erected, which was a small log home, and was followed by a two-story wood-framed hotel in July of 1897. Despite these early buildings quickly taking shape, Eureka was almost entirely a town composed of canvas tents still. A photograph taken in 1897 shows the town with four of the tents marked the Okanagan store, the Eureka store, the barber shop, and the meat market. This was jokingly labeled the Midway Plaisance Eureka. In October of 1897, a survey was conducted of the businesses in the town. Eureka at the time consisted of five stores, three blacksmith shops, a pair of barber shops, four restaurants, two cigar stores, a couple of saloons and gambling houses, and a jeweler who also reportedly sold patent medicines. This settlement really began to take off in 1898, driven mostly due to the very well-publicized success of the Republic Mine. A well-known mining baron from Spokane named Patrick Clark purchased a controlling interest in the mine, and in 1898, the Republic Mine declared a dividend of nearly $150,000. By 1900, the mine would be worth over $3.5 million. March 22, 1898 saw a town site be officially laid out, and not long after this, it would be combined with other small town sites along the creek to become one larger town. This town was briefly called Eureka, but postal authorities soon informed the town that there was already in fact another of the same name in southern Washington. After little debate, the decision was made to name the town after its most famous and successful mine, Republic. New gold strikes were reported on an almost daily occurrence, providing the small newspaper for the town, the Pioneer, to be kept quite busy. One such account described an 1898 rush. Freight trains are arriving daily by the dozen. There are dozens of people in Republic waiting for goods and outfits to arrive that they may commence business. They are more than disappointed at the delay and quietly give vent to their feelings. Most of this freight was hauled on the Okanagan River and then hauled over the pass. The pioneer reported that a steamboat man told them that there were acres of it piled at the river landing and even more piled to the roof of the massive warehouse built to hold these goods. 
By late 1898, civilization began to encroach on this isolated town when telephone wires finally reached the area and Republic saw its first church of the Roman Catholic variety being established. The following year saw the formation of a school district and a fire department. Little Old Republic was beginning to grow up. 1898 was an important year for Republic, because early in that year, the residents of the town decided that they were sick and tired of being part of the vast Stevens County and having to travel extensively just to reach the county seat that was down in Colville. It was decided that they would form their own county, which would be carved from Stevens County. The Republic Pioneer pushed for this change and listed several reasons why this should be in one of their additions. The great distance that separates us from other settled portions of the county the Columbia River laying between, the failure of county or state even so much as a wagon road. This movement had near total support, and in January of 1898, a bill proposing the new county was introduced in Olympia. This new county was originally to have the name Eureka, but folks in Olympia decided to change it to Ferry County. This was a way to honor the first governor of the state of Washington, Alicia P. Ferry. This new county became official on the 21st of February, 1899. Due to the fact that the new county only had one settlement of any size within its area, Republic was easily chosen to become the county seat. Republic in 1899 had outgrown its initial gold camp days and was starting to grow into quite the small little city. The post office was the second busiest post office in all of eastern Washington, only behind Spokane, of course. A lot of the mail that was leaving Republic was carrying good news and the word that there was money to be made here. At this point, it was easily the most significant mining center in the history of the Evergreen State and, at the time, was one of the richest mining districts in the entire nation. Employment was hard to come by, though, since it is said that there were two men vying for every available job. If you've listened to Episode 1... Then you will know that large-scale fires were very common in boomtowns across the Evergreen State in the last two decades of the 1800s, and Republic was no exception to this rule. On the 3rd of June, 1899, a fire started in the pre-dawn hours in the business district, and it soon grew into quite a catastrophe. The fire department had recently been established, so to say its ranks and equipment were meager is an understatement. By the time the fire department finally put out the last embers of the fire, over half of the business district had been destroyed. This would, unfortunately, be a recurring and sad nightmare for the town. Despite the devastation the first fire had wrought, the residents began rebuilding almost immediately. Their efforts would be met with quick success, and in May of 1900, Republic officially incorporated. The vote margin for this was surprisingly tight, with the decision being settled by just nine votes. The yes votes received 283, whereas the no votes totaled 274. John Stack was elected the first mayor. The happy feelings in the town wouldn't last long when a smallpox scare struck the town and the people were terrified to even leave their homes. Hmm, that kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? This caused business at the stores in town to dramatically decrease, and it was mainly all for naught. It was, in fact, just a scare. Most of the reported cases proved to be very mild, with only a few fatalities. 
relatively small compared to most outbreaks of smallpox of the day. Republic's first bust arrived in 1901, just a tough couple of years for this hardscrabble mining town to experience. A significant number of mines around the area shuttered, and the railroad connection that the townsfolk dreamed about and desperately needed had yet to arrive. Even the famed Republic mine was no stranger to this downturn. The company's bunkhouse, which housed nearly all of its mining employees, caught fire, but luckily nobody was injured in this blaze. The mill in town even closed, leaving farmers without another mill for miles. The economic climate of Republic began to bounce back from all this initial bust the next year when the long-awaited railroad whistles were finally heard in the town. Republic actually received two separate railroad lines in 1902. The first was jokingly referred to as the Hot Airline since it had been promised for so long, but was in fact named the Kettle Valley Line, which headed northward for a connection with the Canadian Pacific in Grand Forks, British Columbia. The second line was called the Washington and Great Northern, which connected with the Spokane Falls and Northern Line, itself a part of the much larger Great Northern Railroad system. The arrival of the rails was a little late for the initial mining boom, and this portion of the local economy wouldn't have this sector becoming important again for another couple of decades. This lack of mining meant that the people of Republic and the surrounding areas began to diversify their livelihoods and they began to branch out into the lumber and agricultural businesses. Farming was a tough proposition here given the altitude of the town, which is relatively high at 2,569 feet, which means there was a very short growing season and limited what they could grow. Prospectors still made up a significant portion of the town, and mixed with the growing timber and business, meant that Republic still kept its partying and Wild West-esque vibe. An old-timer once recalled that those early days included a rip-roaring 4th of July celebration, which included such events as trap shooting contests, rock drilling contests, and horse races going right down the main drag of town. It was said that townsfolk cheered and roared for their favorites from windows and balconies of normally respectable businesses. Due to its relative isolation, progress reached Republic rather slowly. 1913 saw the first two motor vehicles arrive in town when Bill Hall and his father drove two Model Ts from Spokane. This was no small feat at the time since there were virtually no infrastructure resembling anything that we know today. Bill later recalled of this event, on the trip home with the two new Fords, we came to one creek that was too high to drive a car across. Anticipating just such trouble, we brought along a block and tackle which was used to snake the first car across the stream, and we used it to pull the second car across. The 1920s were rough on nearly every single mining town of the Evergreen State and the western United States in general. By 1925, the population had fell to below 700 people, of the repeated boom and bust cycle Republic was experiencing, the Spokesman Review of Spokane wrote, When its mines boomed, Republic boomed. When the mining interests waned, the town slumped and badly, in spite of the fact that it was a county seat. That it has dairying, stock raising, and lumbering among its industries, Republic's immediate future depends on the success of a projected custom concentrator, which will handle all of the ores of the camp. When the terrible idea that was the 18th Amendment went into effect, enacting prohibition across the land, many of the people living in the hills around Republic began distilling white lightning, and soon, 
an area in town even became known as Moonshine Gulch. That's what tends to happen when you try to legislate morality. It just doesn't work. Given Republic's close proximity to Canada, it quickly became a natural center for the burgeoning rum-running trade from Canada into the U.S. Dick Slagle, a local historian, remarked on this period of time in Republic, It's only 30 miles to the border, all of it mountains, so local people were transporting liquor by horse from Canada. Republic had two federal enforcement officers who made arrests every once in a while, but they probably overlooked a lot of stuff too. Fire once again visited Republic when, in 1934, the Ferry County Courthouse burned to the ground in a great blaze. This was not a bad thing, though, for the Works Progress Administration, a New Deal era public works agency that mainly built public buildings and roads and employed millions of people, built a new courthouse in a beautiful Art Deco style, and it opened in 1936. This building still stands today and is one of Republic's most iconic and striking landmarks. The Great Depression came with a bit of a silver lining, well, a golden lining if you will. The price of gold reached over $35 an ounce and led to a few of the mines in the area reopening, which included the famed Republic Mine and the well-known Knob Hill Mine, which was located just a few miles outside of town. The mines in and around Republic had been the main reason why the town had gone through several boom and bust cycles throughout its 120-plus year history. There were a couple uranium finds that sparked a small rush, but ultimately, it didn't really pan out. Some of the mines diversified from gold and focused on mining tungsten. The Knob Hill mine proved to be quite productive in gold and silver, and it's reported that in 1956 alone the mine employed 75 people, making itself a large economic driver of Republic. The opening of the highway over Sherman Pass in 1953 meant that again, like the railroads 50 years prior, Republic wasn't so isolated from the outside world of the greater Evergreen State and Pacific Northwest as a whole. The turbulent times that were the 1960s and 70s took their toll on Republic. Its main industry outside of mining was the lumber industry, and we all know that this point in time was rough on this particular industry. Its population was barely over 800 people in 1970, and in 1973, the town very nearly lost its one and only hospital. The community rallied behind a fund drive that was held, and a modern facility was built, saving a vital part of the area. The early 80s fared no different than the previous two decades, though the population in the 1980 census rebounded to a little over 1,000 people. 1983 was a particularly dark year for the town, with a massive blow coming early in the winter when the Knob Hill Mine, which employed roughly 100 people, announced that it would be shutting down entirely. Also in 1983, fire, Republic's old friend, had come once again, when a third blaze befell the town on December 4th. This time, unlike the second blaze, it roared through the town's main drag. Sadly, the historic Republic Hotel would be completely leveled, in addition to a cafe, an all-important liquor store, and the offices of the weekly Republic News Miner. Once again, the town of Republic rebuilt. This time, they built with purpose, and the newly constructed buildings were given an old-timey look to play off the boomtown days of yesteryear. The local merchants ended up spending a million dollars sprucing up the business district. This rebuilding and the rustic turn-of-the-century theme inspired a revitalization of the downtown area. 
In addition to the boost in tourist traffic, 1984 saw a boost in spirits when the Knob Hill Mine, now referred to as the Republic Unit, which was then owned by the Hecla Mining Company, announced that fresh deposits had been located and the mine would remain open. By 1986, the company claimed that this mine was the cheapest gold producer in the entire country. By 1987, the Golden Promise shaft hit another gold ore body. This turn of luck that the mid to late 80s brought to Republic continued into 1989 when a new history museum was built. This museum, now known as the Ferry County Historical Museum, is usually open year-round and its grounds also contain the historical Kaufman Cabin and J.W. and Elizabeth Slagle Home, which are typically open in the summer months for tours. Admission to this museum is free, but of course, donations will not be turned down. Bust returned once again to the town in the 90s when the Knob Hill Mine, its major ore body having run out, was closed by Hecla for good. It was around this same time that numerous sawmill jobs began to disappear as well. By this time, a new natural resource was beginning to take focus and receive statewide press, that of fossils. Embedded in shale since the Eocene epoch, paleontologists discovered that Boot Hill was a veritable gold mine and located smack dab in the middle of town. The ancient site of Republic was once a part of a massive lake bed filled with all sorts of plants, fish, and insects. These fossils were in great abundance and are actually pretty easy to locate. A paleobotany curator at the Smithsonian stated of the site, Republic is a very important site, age-wise and because the preservation is so good, for piecing together the changes that were going on in the West in ancient times. At first, this discovery was only important to scientists, but the city concocted a plan in 1986 to hold some public digs. Hundreds of kids fanned out on the hillside to hunt for fossils, curating lifelong memories for the children and giving city planners a great idea. Today, the Stone Rose Interpretive Center and Fossil Site sees thousands of armchair and amateur geologists looking for fossils a year, permits from the center in hand, of course. You have to be incredibly unlucky to walk away empty-handed from a fossil dig here, though Stone Rose does reserve the right to retain any specimen that may pose a specific scientific value. Stone Rose quickly became the center of Republic's tourist economy, and to this day continues to draw crowds to its awesome attraction. This secluded and quiet part of the Evergreen State also offers numerous lakes, creeks, trails, and campgrounds, all of which offer visitors a wonderful opportunity to unplug from life and get back in touch with Mother Nature. Gold mining today in Republic is very much a thing of the past. The Knob Hill Mine has not reopened since closing a quarter of a century ago. Though mining does remain a significant part of the local economy, since there is still some gold ore that is trucked in from another mine in the region and milled in Republic. Meanwhile, for those that care for history and take the time to look and study, its gold mining boom and bust periods are evident everywhere around town, from abandoned mining shafts to tailing piles that once made up Eureka Gulch. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include... HistoryLink.org, Wikipedia, RepublicWa.org, the Ferry County Historical Society, the Spokane History Researchers Group on Facebook, MyNorthwest.com, FamilySearch.org, and Washington Rural Heritage.
A special thanks goes out to Alan Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening to episode 19, Booms and Busts, The Story of Republic. Episode 20 will be released next week. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. That email address can also be found in the episode description in addition to the link to buy me a coffee, which offers you, the listener, the opportunity to support the show and to keep it going. One-time and monthly donations will go towards research material to assist me in continuing to put out these episodes. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hoe. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stilicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still a Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.